Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, author David Palman. He wrote a book called The Tangled Tree, which was more recent than the book we're going to talk about, which is called Spillover, which is 1,000% relevant for the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic that's going on today. Spillover talks about um, viruses leaving animals that we get in close proximity with, whether we're eating them or butchering them or maybe even hanging out with them and you know, infecting humans. So that's what his book talks about in part. And I wanted to have him on because I think he'll uh, provide a lot of insight into what's going on. So David, thanks for coming. It's nice to be talking with you again, Rich. Nice to be back. Yeah. What, what first prompted you to research the material for Spillover and then write it? Well, I got interested in Ebola virus first about 25 years ago. I read some things about it, including some of Richard Preston's things. And, uh, and then I did an expedition for National Geographic. I covered an expedition, uh, a, a fellow who was walking across the, uh, the Congo, walking across the great Central African forests. And I walked with him for about uh, eight weeks. You know, we were walking in sandals and river shorts so we can cross swamps and things. Uh, and uh, we walked for 10 days through Ebola habitat. And I knew that Ebola was there somewhere in some animal. Uh, the quote unquote reservoir host, the place where it lives when it's not killing humans. But we didn't know what the reservoir host was. So it was this spooky mystery, walking through the jungle every day, sleeping on the on the ground every night, eating out of a common stew pot with, uh, you know, 12 other guys, his, his Congolese crew, oh. and, uh, and wondering where Ebola was, somewhere near around us. Uh, and that got me interested in the ecology and evolutionary biology of Ebola virus. And yeah. And then I noticed that that was part of a larger subject, which was the ecology and evolutionary biology of, of what are called zoonotic diseases, these infections that pass from non-human animals into humans. So that was the beginning of the, of the interest that led to the book. Yeah, I, I, you know, I know that's a big question with Ebola is where does it go when it disappears? No one knows. Yeah. And, I, and then I started thinking about flu, like where does it go in the off season, I call it. But I yeah. think it, what it does is it, it then moves to uh, the climates that are opposite, you know, in the south. I think it moves to the southern hemisphere and then maybe back to the north on this endless cycle. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coronavirus, you know, we don't know yet, but um, I mean, we really don't know really where it came from. We have speculation and we don't know where it's going. So these are all uh, right. good questions, is, I guess. Well, yeah, questions. this is a field. And that's one of the things that, um, that made the book work for me as a project. This is a field that is all about. Um, detective work, a series of detective stories. You know, a new virus appears in the human population, causing um, disease and death and passing from one human to another. Scientists um, isolate it, they grow it, they sequence the genome, they say, we've never seen this before, but it belongs to such and such family. But where the hell did it come from? Well, it had to come from somewhere, some living creature, because viruses can only replicate in living creatures. So we know if it's infecting humans, it probably came from a mammal, 
um, similar to us. Uh, and then the, the mystery is um, which, which animal did it come from? Which mammal did it come from? That's mystery A. And mystery B is how did it happen to spill over from that wild animal into humans? And you have to solve those two mysteries in order to, to be able to prevent future such things from happening. Well, so you studied spillover in I don't know how many viruses. Like what, what kind of insights have you gotten into looking at multiple spillover events for different viruses? Is it just so varied that there's no intelligence yet on it or are there some? Well, no, there are patterns and patterns that can be discerned and predictions that can be made. And uh, I tried to highlight those in my book for for the readers, um, not just the reader's interest, but for the reader's uh, best interests and in health. Um, we need to, we need to understand these things in order to in order to protect ourselves and prevent more of these things from happening. But so, ten years ago, I'm researching the book. I asked the scientists that I was spending time with, these experts in infectious disease and zoonotic disease. I asked them what what is the what are, what are the chances that there will be a next big one, a next big global pandemic 10 years ago? And they said, yes, there, there's going to be a, a next big one. Uh, I called it that in capital letters, the NBO, the next big one. Uh, what does it look like? Well, they told me, this is sort of a consensus summary of what they told me. Uh, there will be a next big one. It will be caused by a virus. It will be caused by a virus we haven't seen before. Where will that virus come from? Well, it'll come from wild animals. What kind of wild animals? Well possibly a bat. Um, and there, I re- explain the reasons for that in the book. Uh, what kind of virus? Well, a virus that has the capacity to evolve quickly. So maybe an influenza or maybe a coronavirus. Um, uh, where would this coronavirus uh, pass from bats into humans? Well, someplace where we have contact with, uh, with bats, for instance, a wet market or the supply chain on the way to a wet market. Um, where but might that happen? Well, for instance, in China. So this is all in my book published in 2012, not because I was prescient, but because these scientists were telling me these are the takeaway lessons. These are the, the prediction points that, that um, we should focus on. It's all there. The most surprising thing uh, to me when this thing began and, and got, really got rolled uh, was not that it was a coronavirus, not that it came out of a bat, not that it happened in or around a wet market in China, but that anybody at all could claim to be surprised by this, um, could claim, could claim, well, we, nobody saw it coming. Yeah. Yeah. We saw it coming. The scientists saw it coming. The science writers who follow the science saw it coming. Um, and we were beating the drum as loud as we can. Wow. Um, I don't know. I mean, on this one, you know, there's some reports that may not have, uh, come from the wet market. Who knows? It may have been engineered. That's all yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, out, I've so. seen those rumors too. Those those rumors are are you know are uh, provocative and uh, titillating, but there, there's no data. There's no science behind any of those rumors. That's something. If it happened, if it came from a laboratory, it'd be easy to prove because you'd get the you'd take the molecular um, sequence, the, the the genome sequence of the virus in people, and you would compare that to um, the sequence of the virus as anybody has it in the lab, and either it would match or it would be three years of evolutionary dis- distance from that. Um, nobody has shown uh, molecular evidence to support that, that claim. But there is a possibility that it did not come from the Wuhan market directly, that it got into people from a bat somewhere along in the supply chain, uh, and that it was circulating in the city of Wuhan outside of the market as early as November. 
Now that's something for which there is some real evidence and, and I'm going to be among the people who are trying to follow it up. What would be the supply chain for a wet market? Uh, just hunters that are... Yeah, that hunters, are right, hunters, right. You know, where do these wild animals come from that are on on sale in a, in a wet market, you know, pangolins, sometimes pangolins from Africa can be on sale in a wet market in, right. in China. Um, turtles from, uh, from Africa, tortoises from Madagascar, uh, all these exotic uh, endangered animals, in some cases endangered, that, are, that people want to pay, you know, premium prices to eat. Uh, there's a supply chain for that. And, and for, a, for a horseshoe bat that might be carrying a coronavirus, the supply chain wouldn't have to be that long. It would be from, you know, from the countryside of Hubei province or maybe the countryside of Yunnan province. Um, there is evidence that um, evidence published three years ago that this virus had already been identified in horseshoe bats from a cave in Yunnan province by a very good scientist at the Wuhan, Wuhan Institute of Virology three years ago. She and her colleagues published a paper three years ago saying, look at this virus. It's the same virus. It's 96.2% identical, the genome, to this virus. She had it three years ago from a bat from a cave in Yunnan. Wow. So, I don't know. Any, any, uh, do you feel like you have any particular insights on how this, uh, this is going to play out? Do you think that all of a sudden the virus will run its course and disappear and we won't know where it goes? Or do you? No, no, I'm not optimistic that's going to happen. Uh, I'm like like everybody. I'm listening to the experts now, and I'm reading some scientific articles uh, as fast as I can. I'm paying attention to Tony Fauci. Uh, he's the only one that I trust standing up at. Well, I suppose I trust Deborah Burks, but Tony Fauci has been around for a long time. You can trust him. Uh, he's got a very difficult job right now. Um, um, I think that this virus is not going to go away. Uh, I think it's going to become probably an endemic problem in the human population. I think uh, if we if we start to eliminate our social distancing, I think there's going to be a second wave that's probably going to be at least as bad as the first one. Uh, that might turn into a cycle because I know it's hard. It's hard for people to social distance. It's hard. You know, I'm a freelance writer, so I can work from home and, and make some money. But you know, if I if I were still a bartender, as I you know was early in my career, um, I'd be saying like a lot of people, well, how in the hell am I going to pay my rent and buy groceries if I can't work? Um, I sympathize with that um, deeply, but um, but opening back up is going to cause another wave. It's going to cause a second wave of infections. Uh, more people are going to die, um, and then eventually we're going to, I hope, have a vaccine. Maybe in a year year and a half, maybe. Um, and then it's going to take time to get people vaccinated. It's going to take time. Um, so we're looking at, at years um, during which this is going to be, I think, a severe problem. And then after that, it's going to be a chronic problem. Um, I think, and this is not original with me, but it comes from people I trust. I think that maybe the model is not going to be an influenza where it comes and it makes people sick and it travels around the world and then that influenza is gone and we have another one coming out of wild aquatic birds the next year and when the when the influenza season is over in the north northern hemisphere then it's influenza season in the southern hemisphere and then it evolves because you influenza viruses evolve quickly and it's gone no i don't think that's the model for this i think the model for this is measles measles can be a very serious d- disease it can kill people in a naive population, um, can make a lot of people sick. It's very transmissible. 
we don't think of it much because a lot of the world is vaccinated. And uh, so most populations, um, big populations like the U.S., we have uh, largely we have herd immunity, but you still have um, outbreaks of measles. And uh, in some cases, it still kills people. It never goes away. I think I think that that's the model for what this is going to. But that's just that's just an educated guess. Well, uh, do you think that the world is overreacting by by shutting down? Uh, no. you know, I mean, people die every day of all kinds of things. Do you think that uh, yeah. this is warranted or no? No, no, and and notwithstanding, Doctor Phil, six hundred thousand people do not die in swimming pool only. Oh. Oh. but um, but people die of the influenza. Yeah, in a bad year in the U.S., thirty thousand people can die of influenza in a bad year. Uh, so we're in April and we've got what, 44,000 deaths so far? And that may be an undercount. Um, the case fatality rate, I think of this in the US right now is 5%. That's way, way higher than influenza. Uh, this is gonna kill more people than influenza. It's gonna kill more people than traffic accidents. It's gonna kill more people than heart disease. This is a real crisis. And yet, Yes, as I've said, I'm sympathetic with people for whom shutting down is a real, real uh, hardship, and in some cases, a life-threatening hardship. People have got other conditions that that they need to have treated. So, um, it's a. Am I allowed to say it's a shit show on your show, Rich? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible, um, um, heartbreaking mess. That's a little bit more polite way to put it. But it's not, it's not an illusion. It's not, it's not a. It's not a small routine problem. Hmm. Um, I don't know. So with your background and with your study, do you have any insight to help us, you know, I, I don't know, move along the path towards being well, in a better situation somehow? Yeah. I mean, we, I think we need to do two things. First, we need to deal with this. We need to get this thing under control. And secondly, we need to be more prepared for the next one because there will be another next one. Um, well, how, do, how do you get it under control if, uh, you know, if we don't have a vaccine or a medicine yet? Well, you... You, Locking down, that just seems to delay the inevitable, I guess. I don't know. Um, well, you know, they say flatten the curve. Um, so delaying the inevitable um, involves allowing our healthcare capacity to deal with these, um, these cases that come along in a little bit more gradual way. And maybe the total number of cases, total number of people infected, maybe we, at this point we can't control that very much. We can control it some. We can't control it totally. But if we slow it down by social distancing, by flattening the curve, by by decreasing in infectious contacts between one person and or another, then that means that um, when when you're I don't know how old you are, Rich. Um, oh, I'm in my forties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got grandparents? Well, uh, no, I haven't no. had grandparents for no a long living time. Grandparents. So, but so you know people. People can think about their 80 or 85-year-old grandmother. Um, when she gets this, if the curve is flattened, there's more likely to be healthcare capacity to give her really good care, to get her into an intensive care unit, to get her a ventilator. But if the crisis is all happening at once, because 20-year-olds are running around at Fort Lauderdale infecting one another, and some of those uh, young people get very sick. Uh, it's not impossible for a young person to get sick from this, but it's more likely that young person spreads it, spreads the, the virus and it gets to older people and people with secondary conditions. And then people are in, uh, in you know, mortal crisis because uh, the virus is continuing to, to pass for lack of social distancing. And then 
And then that 20 year old, then his grandmother dies uh, because she's, she's triaged in a corridor of, um, of a, a desperately overloaded hospital in Queens. Um, that those are the stakes. And some people are saying, yeah, you know, well, let, let this virus knock off the people who are, who are most, um, most um, susceptible to it, most vulnerable to it. And then we'll have herd immunity. That's kind of hard. That's kind of cold. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be that person's grandparent. You know, they said yeah. that. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so again, I'm, I'm hugely sympathetic with the, the costs of social distancing, but the costs of not social distancing, I think are even greater. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, yeah, well, I don't know. So in, in spillover, I mean, now is this is this prompted you? It's been, I guess, eight years since you wrote it. Now it's, you know, obviously, uh, yeah. perfectly prescient. Are you working on a new book now? Are you going to be cataloging this this crisis as it goes for a I, new work? Like, you know, in your role as a writer, what's your job now? Yeah, well, I've been doing a lot of interviews for the last eight weeks, so that's taken most of my time. Is talking about spillover and talking about the predictions that it made when it was published eight years sort of following through with that because people want to know about that. But I'm also finally trying to do some new work, some new research and some new thinking. I was working on another book for my book publisher, Simon & Schuster. Um, They have asked me to shove that aside and uh, and do a book on COVID-19. Now, there's going to be a bunch of books done. Maybe every publisher in New York will have their their own book on COVID-19, but Simon & Schuster has asked me if I would do theirs. And so how do you say no to that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Um, and I'm also I'm just finishing a, a piece on on one aspect of this for the New Yorker mag. So I've been busy with. It. So yeah, I'm starting to get back to being a writer. Um, well, that's interesting. There's going to be a lot of books about it. What What do you think will be useful that's written about it versus just you know a Me Too book yeah. that that's not very helpful? Like what, like in general, what what advice is helpful right now to people? You think versus like you know the news media is just panic, constant panic. Yeah. Well, I think. Uh, and I think there are two questions that sort of are bundled in what you just asked. What what sort of reporting is helpful to people right now? Uh, but a book is not right now. If you if you're doing a right. book, you're talking about a year or two years from now at the very least. Um, so what can be helpful in a book is different from what can be helpful on tonight's news or in, or next next week's issue of the New Yorker magazine. Um, huh. What can be helpful now, I think, is some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, uh, we need we need measures to get this under control, and to do that, we need social distancing, and we need cooperation for social distancing. But we also need scientific, technological, and policy support to help people who are distanced themselves, to help them be able to get out of those apartments and those houses as soon as possible. And that involves um, we need massive quantities of test kits. We need more. I don't know why test kits weren't quickly available. I. I don't know how we missed that one, how we swung at that ball. They, they still don't seem to be available. No, right. And, and some, some, of them are, some of them are reliable. Some of them are not. Uh, yeah, even worse. Now they're, talking, now they're talking about test kits um, for serum tests to, to try and reveal who has antibodies, who might have you know, passed through the tunnel and come out the other end with, with resistance to this thing. Right. That's right. an important thing to know because those people can go back to work. Uh, so we need to know that we need to have that serum testing, that antibody testing. We need to have diagnostic tests of who is simply infected right now. We don't have those in the quantity that we needed. I think I just heard that. Didn't we just receive by 600,000 test kits from South Korea because we don't have the capacity to produce them? That's crazy, but um, good for South Korea. 
South Korea has been on top of this from the beginning uh, for reasons that we could discuss maybe. Um, that's part of what my New Yorker piece is about. Well, I don't um, understand. I mean, we've had well over a month, right? We can't galvanize the right companies in the U.S. and say like, you know, the government can't say we'll pay you, produce the heck out of, you know, what we need, make millions of tests now, we'll pay you, do it. I mean, instead do right. a program to supposedly inject trillions, which does nothing and most of the money never gets distributed anyway. Like it just makes no sense. It's weird. It does make no sense. And, that, and that's the sort of thing that South Korea did. You know, call in the South Korean version of Johnson & Johnson and tell them we want test kits. Uh, oh. we, want, we want huge quantities of test kits by next week. Yeah, South Korea did things like that. Why didn't we do that? Well, it's because of who we is, I think, at the upper policy levels. Um, we have not been well served by our... Um, our leaders, our decision makers, our higher bureaucrats. Um, it's, been, um, it's, it's been a tragedy of, um, of obfuscation, confusion, uh, bad communication, um, um, cautious and misguided policy decisions, uh, false economy, all those things, all those things. It's, well, like, you know, uh, for instance, let's say you're Fauci, okay? I know he's in an impossible position, I understand. Yeah. But do you think he's said to Trump, for instance, hey, look, you got you to gotta make an announcement that we're going to, you know, produce countless millions of tests, like, right away, and you're going to essentially tell these industries get going. Like, I mean, do you think he's said that, but he's been told, you know, don't say anything, or do you think he's even thought of that, or, I mean, I don't yeah, know. I like, think he's thought of that. You know, I, I have high respect for Fauci. Um, he's been around a long time, you know, six presidents that he has served. Uh, wow. he, he has had the opportunity to move upward in the bureaucracy. And he said, no, I'm going to stay right here at the National Institutes for Allergies and Infectious Disease. I think I can do good. I think I can make a difference. Uh, I don't know Fauci, but I've met Fauci. I've conversed with him briefly. Uh, he impressed me as a straight fellow. Uh, um, so I think he's not who I'm talking about. I, but he's, you know, he, he, he tries his very best to be unpolitical. Uh, yep. And yet it's, a, it's to some degree a political job. It's the art of the possible. I think he is staying in it because he's thinking, you know, I could, I could say things and get myself fired in a blaze of glory tomorrow if I yep. wanted to. But what oh, good yeah. is that? So I think I won't do that. I think I'll stick it out as best I can and try and turn this, this aircraft carrier as much as I can with what leverage I have. Um, I think he's doing that, and I'm glad he's doing that. Um, but um, there's only so much you can do if you've, if you've chosen that, that route. Uh, so what, what we're are, getting from his boss is this gobbledygook. With, with your book, the, uh, the Tangled Tree, it seems like you've come to a different understanding of, of evolution. So I want to ask you a different question. Sure, yeah, thank you. Where, where is this virus going, you think? Is it, uh, you know, like people say it's randomly mutating and natural selection, and, you know, this is the same Darwinian story I've heard eight billion times. Do you, do you really think that's what's happening, or do you think the virus is, is kind of headed in a certain direction? You know, am I just saying crazy yeah. speculation? What's your thought? Well, I, let's talk about that, because I'm very interested in that question, and I'm following some people, and I'm going to be spending more time digging deep into the work of the the evolutionary virologists who are tracking this. First of all, let's talk about what we know. Uh, we know how they track it and how they track it is by taking samples from different patients, different points in time over the last two months plus um, in different places 
taking samples of the virus and, and sequencing it, getting the, the genetic sequence of the viruses. And then they can compare that. They can build a family tree, just like I talked about family trees in the tangled tree. Um, they can build a family tree of this virus since it was first sequenced on January 6th or January 10th in China. Um, how has it changed? Um, uh, mutation by mutation. It's a coronavirus, so it does mutate with a reasonable um, degree of frequency. That's something that's just true of coronaviruses because of the kind of genome they have. They have a single-stranded RNA genome, and when it copies itself, it makes mistakes. So this virus is mutating as it goes along, as it replicates itself. Some of those mutations just disappear. Why? Because it's a mutation that is a dead end for the particular um, viral progeny. So they just drop out. They're not successful in replicating humans or getting transmitted. Um, the successful ones are the ones that you see over time. Um, these, these sequences have followed through from Wuhan to Seattle to Chicago or whatever, and you're seeing a continuous lineage of this virus. The, the people who study this are telling us that this virus it, it may be mutating at a relatively high degree, but it's not changing very much. Uh, why is it not changing when um, we know that um, mutation is the, is the raw material of evolution by natural selection, and that allows adaptation? Well, probably because it doesn't need to adapt any better than it already is. That's what they're saying, is that this virus is not changing very much because it doesn't need to change. It's already succeeding so well in getting from one human to another and turning itself into um, one of the most widespread viruses on earth right now. Um, so, so that's what I'm hearing. So, okay. So you think it'll, uh, I mean, if, well, maybe that's good in a way if it is static from here, because it may not be like flu, which seems to change uh, dramatically every year Shoot, and flu, makes it difficult yeah, to find vaccines. Right, right. right. Flu, flu evolves much more quickly than this, changes much more quickly than the coronavirus. But a coronavirus is, Coronavirus changes more quickly than some other kinds of virus, like a, a herpes virus or an adenovirus. Those, those change much more slowly. This one is in between with a reasonably fast evolutionary potential. Uh, but if it's getting from one host to another and, and, and replicating itself abundantly in, in different cases and passing from one human to another, then it doesn't need to change to achieve evolutionary success. However, if we get a vaccine, then it's got a reason to evolve. Um, so it has the capacity to evolve around a vaccine, to evolve to escape a vaccine, but not as fast as a flu virus does. That's the reason we need a new flu vaccine every year is because the viruses evolve uh, and there's always a new one coming at us. Um, this virus, it may be around for a long time. Um, we may get a vaccine. I hope we will. Um, it may slowly evolve to escape that vaccine, to, to defeat that vaccine. But that's, according to what I'm hearing from the experts, that's not going to happen in a year. Uh, the vaccine sh that we get should be good for a longer period of time than that. You, I mean, well, I guess it's a silly question if you think this is going to happen again. You know, unfortunately, it probably will, but... yeah. Yeah. You think it will? And if it does, when and how? And what's your, what's your thought? Well, if it, it, it's... So this is a, this is a spillover of a coronavirus into, from a bat into a human that turned into an outbreak in the city of Wuhan, focused on that market, dozens or hundreds of cases. And then it became an epidemic spreading across China. And then it became a pandemic spreading across the world. 
we can stop some of those transition points. There are going to be more spillovers of new viruses from animals getting into humans and causing outbreaks. Here's a dozen cases uh, of people who died of a strange new pneumonia-like disease in some part of the world. Look, oh, it came from this wild animal. We can contain it. We can get there fast. We can detect that. We can prevent the outbreak from turning into an epidemic, let alone a pandemic. We can do that. We have the science. We have the technology. If we have the political will to invest in more of that science and more of that technology, we can stop future outbreaks from turning into pandemics. And we need to recognize that. We need to have that political will to invest in the science, the technology, like test kits, diagnostic kits, uh, more ventilator capacity, more ICU capacity, um, to invest in, the, in um, preparation. And if we do that, then we can probably, I hope, stop future outbreaks from turning into pandemics like this. Well, that's probably a good way to close. So, um, David, I encourage people to read Spillover. You know, I've been going through it. It's a, it's a good book. And, you know, Thank you, uh, obviously it's, it's super relevant. Uh, the Tangled Tree, probably secondarily to that, you know, in terms of uh, ease of understanding, you know, it's just my guess. But uh, both are good. So how else can people keep track of you and what you're working on and, and find out more? Well, I have a website, davidquaman.com. But uh, frankly, I'm, I, I've been too busy to... Um, refresh anything on my website recently. Uh, I'm, I'm out here um, talking and writing. Um, I'm, I'm easy to find. Uh, but more importantly, the work. My work is easy to find, and I hope it'll be useful to people. What I try to do very hard, whether it's a piece for The New Yorker or a new book or whatever, what I try to do is explain the science and the, and the, the human story behind these big, important developments. I try to tell stories that are interesting, that are page turners, but that go deep into the science and give people um, a new way of seeing the world um, and, and have, some, have some fun, even if it's diseases. The stories can be, can be sort of fun to read. And so that's what, I'm, that's what I'm out here trying to do. Well, very good. David, thank you for coming. Like I said, it's been a great call. and I, I appreciate you being here. Rich, always good to talk with you. Stay safe. Be well, man. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.